I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another Psychology of Aging Continuing Education podcast. Today, we're talking about a really hot topic topic on chronic pain, opioids, and addiction among older adults. I want to kind of set the stage about why this is so important. Close to 30% of adults in the United States are living with chronic pain, and the vast majority of these folks are 65 and older. Of course, if you've listened to this podcast, we have a lot of episodes on pain, um, and, and you've heard over and over again that a high percentage of people living with chronic pain also experience depression. One thing you've also heard, I'm sure, is uh, about the opioid crisis and the complexities of using opioids with older adults, but also just in the, in the management of chronic pain. And so I wanted to bring on an expert to really talk about the complexities and the nuances of chronic pain and managing chronic pain and what to do when people are suffering and when to use opioids and how to use them safely. Can we do that? And what about the opioid crisis? How much responsibility are physicians and the medical systems taking um, in relation to the opioid crisis? I also want to say there was a report, I think in 2017, yeah, from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Studies that showed that um, among users of Medicare and Medicaid, so Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries have some of the highest and fastest growing rates of diagnosed opioid use disorder. So it's critical that we're having this conversation today and learning some skills and tools and, and just broadening our and deepening our knowledge about chronic pain and opioid use among older adults, addiction, and the opioid crisis. So let me tell you about today's guest, Dr. Sudhir Potru. Dr. Potru is a triple board certified anesthesiologist, interventional pain specialist, and addiction medicine specialist with strong interest in both opioid safety and addiction medicine. He's an assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine and the medical director of the Atlanta VA's Complex Pain Clinic. This clinic specializes in treating veterans who have chronic pain associated with high-dose opioid use or substance abuse problems. He sits on multiple national committees related to pain and substance use disorders and is actively involved with research and advocacy related to these topics. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Sudhir Potru, thank you so much for joining us. I'm curious Absolutely. if you could like start by sharing a little <clears throat> bit about your current work and what mm -hmm. inspired you to work with people with chronic pain, addiction, <clears throat> and just that population altogether. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this, it's an interesting story, you know, so 
I, when I finished, so I, I'm an anesthesiologist and I did training in what's called interventional pain medicine. So um, I finished uh, my training in Chicago back in 2015. And I got out thinking I was going to be just an interventional pain specialist. For, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, essentially, it's a doctor who prescribes medications for pain and does different types of injections. Um, and primarily, like the focus is on really just like, really like the spine and like the joints, like musculoskeletal pain is really sort of the emphasis. So I was working in this space um, in a few hospital-based pain clinics up in Michigan. Uh, and, you know, um, it was in a rural area, like in the thumb of Michigan. If you're not, not aware of the full geography of Michigan, of course, it looks like a hand. And I was working in places that are up here. Detroit's like a little bit closer to like down here. And so, um, you know, so I was driving out, you know, to some rural areas, primarily Caucasian, primarily, you know, maybe you would call it socioeconomically disadvantaged to some extent. Unfortunately, the really kind of place where addiction can be endemic uh, in that vicinity with it is just rife for, for issues. And so I kept encountering patients. So I was doing operating room anesthesia where I was putting patients to sleep for surgery and I was working in our pain clinics. And I just kept encountering patients over and over and over who had signs and symptoms of opioid and alcohol addiction. And because I was in a rural area, there aren't many addiction resources to speak of in those areas. There are barely any pain resources to speak of for sure. Uh, and so I started thinking about actually trying to treat some of these patients um, myself because there was just nobody around to take care of them. And so I talked to my partners about it and I talked to my practice administrators about it. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that we realized we just didn't really have the infrastructure to kind of do some of these things, to prescribe Suboxone and, and other different things to be able to take care of some of these folks in the right way. And I realized that, you know, the, the interventional pain work I do, it's fascinating and I absolutely love it, but it just seemed to me like there was a bigger problem and a bigger issue. And I started to read more about it and I became really fascinated by the, the you know, the, the understanding of the neurobiology of addiction and all these other different things. And so um, it just worked out well that my wife was finishing her training at the time. And so we were looking for jobs all over the place. I had worked in the private sector for a couple of years, but I started looking around for more opportunities kind of in academics so I could do some teaching and some research and kind of work a little bit more sort of within this addiction space that you can't really do in a private practice pain setting. And so um, I was fortunate enough to get a position here in Atlanta at our VA. Uh, so I started working with veterans basically who have like typically like chronic pain and like addiction issues. Um, also chronic pain and like on, who are on high dose opiate medications, who might need a rotation, who might need a taper, who might need just like a safety check to make sure everything is kind of going well and as it should be. Uh, and so that's been primarily my focus. Um, and so what I did is, so this past year, actually, um, I just got my third board certification in addiction medicine, which is, which is really exciting for me to be able to, to kind of do that. Um, and sort of have like an additional expertise and be able to take care of people who are really in some of these kind of complex and very challenging situations. Um, and so that's kind of, so what I've been doing pretty much for the last like couple of years is working in that clinic, obviously taking care of veterans, providing like advice to some of my colleagues at the VA. And, you know, frankly, a lot of my colleagues just in Atlanta and across the country about kind of how to deal with some of these like challenging sort of patient scenarios. Additionally, I've been like looking at how what substance abuse and addiction really look like in kind of the perioperative space, like for people who are undergoing surgeries and different things like this, how to manage some of the medications when they're undergoing anesthesia, you know, thinking about all that, because that's obviously a very complicated and challenging topic, too. Um, so Can I jump in and ask you a question. Of course. Yeah. You said uh, Suboxone, right? Yeah. Can you just for our listeners explain what Suboxone is? Absolutely. So 
Suboxone, so there are three um, medications that are FDA approved for what we call opioid use disorder, which is the fancy medical name for opioid addiction. Um, so there's one which is called methadone, which many of you are probably familiar with, um, which is prescribed and dispensed in a methadone clinic, which is a federally regulated facility. There's a medication called buprenorphine, it's probably better known by its trade name, Suboxone. What it is, is essentially, it's a, a, um, a different type of opioid, a different type of medicine that basically can block cravings and withdrawal symptoms related to, you know, um, opioid withdrawal or opioid addiction. It's very, you can prescribe it in an office-based setting, which is nice. Um, and there's another medication called naltrexone, which is, uh, it works a little bit differently than the other two, uh, but it's very, very effective as well. So when I say Suboxone and buprenorphine, I kind of, I apologize for using the trade name, of course, but I'll be probably using them, you know, relatively interchangeably. It's just a lot of people, when they hear the word buprenorphine, they're like, oh my God, that's a really long thing. And I can't wrap my mind around that. A lot of people have at least heard the term Suboxone before. So it makes it a little bit easier for them to understand. Yeah. Thank you. So congratulations on your third board certification in addiction medicine. And this uh, combination, I think, is really timely and really key given the opioid crisis that we're, are, are we actually emerging out of the opioid crisis? Oh, or God, what's, no. what's your, <laughs> so can you give us a, a sense of what the current state of things is within the opioid crisis itself? Absolutely. So a lot of people don't realize that opioid prescribing actually reached its peak in 2011, 2012 is when we were at the highest amount of opioid prescribing. So imagine that my top hand is opioid prescribing. Imagine that my bottom hand is overdoses. As you can, so I wish I could do this, I wish I could put my hands backwards, but as you can see, opioid prescribing come down, we're actually seeing opioid overdoses go up, unfortunately. Okay, wait, really we need to repeat that because um, yeah. the listeners won't be able to see you. So as okay. Opioid prescribing is decreasing. It's decreasing now. We are actually seeing opioid overdoses escalate substantially. Oh my gosh. Which is a fascinating trend. And the reason is because, uh, well, there are a lot of different reasons. I won't, I don't need to go too much into the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. And I mean, I will if you want me to. But the reality is that, um, unfortunately, there's a whole lot of illicit fentanyl and heroin and other different things that are coming in from other places all across the world, whether that's East Asia or South America, whatever it might be. The reality is that prescription opiate overdoses, um, there weren't necessarily even that many back then, but now they're even less because there are less opioids in circulation. Um, what's happening is the reason why people are, are dying primarily, unfortunately, is because of this illicit fentanyl that's kind of flowing in from overseas and other different areas. So. You, you, you know, it's to the, to the average, you know, I think layperson, you would probably think that, okay, well, we're prescribing less medications, there's less out there. But, you know, as a result, unfortunately, the, um, there are a lot of folks who have realized just how powerful, you know, some of these things can be and have started to take advantage. Fentanyl was, of course, a drug that we, I, I as an anesthesiologist, have used in the operating room. Primarily, you're actually supposed to use it for, you know, in, in situations where patients are having surgery or when they have like cancer pain or different things like this. But, different things have changed. And um, unfortunately, all of the post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, isolation, all that stuff that's obviously worsened substantially in the COVID pandemic has just escalated all these problems and all these issues. People, patients who were in recovery, you know, they had their support networks, they had their families, they had jobs, they had other things to keep them busy. A lot of them don't have those things anymore or are struggling for financially or for whatever reason, and unfortunately are relapsing. And when you relapse, 
from a heroin addiction onto fentanyl, unfortunately, it can it can often be fatal just because it's so much more powerful of a of a of a drug, right? So it's a sad situation. That's why you know we need to. I it would be nice if we were emerging from the COVID epidemic, or I should say the opiate epidemic. But things I think we're starting to get a little bit better in 2019. Um, but then after everything happened, you know, unfortunately things are worse. We finally hit, and you guys probably have seen this on the news. Um, we finally hit in a calendar year over 100,000 drug overdoses in the United States of America, which as of 2016, 2017, 2018, it was still escalating, but we were still only maybe in the 60 to 70,000 range. So it's really the problem is actually getting much, much, much worse, unfortunately. And these are deaths by overdose? These are deaths by overdose. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's any overdose. It's not just opioids, obviously, but um, you know, unfortunately, we know that fentanyl is playing a significant role. If we think that at least probably 60 to 65%, if not more, I mean, who really knows, honestly, on some level, um, are, are involved are involved illicit fentanyl. Mm. So is it accurate to say that with the opioid <clears throat> epidemic, which is um, prescribers, uh, when did the opioid epidemic start, would you say? Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. You want the government answer or you want the real answer? The real answer? The real answer? Probably like 2002, 2003. And what's the government answer? 2011, 2012. Whoa. Yeah, that's a significant... The reality is that people were overdosing and dying a lot earlier. Um, It's just that the things that they were overdosing on weren't as strong which means it was using, they were using primarily heroin back then, right? Which is not nearly as strong as fentanyl is. So you can give a dose of naloxone, which as you guys know, is a nasal spray that um, paramedics will use to revive uh, folks who are overdosed. And usually they only need, you know, one dose, maybe two at most, right? With fentanyl, they need a lot more. Uh, and so, and oftentimes they'll actually need an infusion. They need like an IV drip actually of, of naloxone actually to remain alive and breathing, which means that, you know, it's obviously much harder to, to do and much harder to treat. No lay person on, on the street, anybody can stick a, a spray in somebody's nose a couple of times, but it's impossible to really provide that kind of medical care outside of any medical scenario, right? Outside of an institute. Well, right. An IV drip of. Yeah. Right. You can't do that on the street. Exactly. Right. Um. <clears throat> Wow. So, so 2002, 2003, why is there a discrepancy between the real and the government answer? I mean, so I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say, maybe I overstated things a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily say it's one answer versus another. I think it's 
I think the real beginning of it was really 0203. And I think it just started to escalate probably substantially more so 2010, 2011, 2012, to the point where, um, you know, where we really started to realize that, you know, uh, we were causing, we may have actually been causing a problem, right? And we were causing a problem, we'll be honest, right? You know, a lot of the initial opioid exposure that happened was through pharmaceutical opioids, right? Which was, you know, in large part, you know, potentially due to marketing and some other different things, you know, back in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, that convinced physicians and other practitioners that opioids were safe medications that didn't really cause a lot of issues. We sort of learned the hard way that that's not really the case. Um, and so now, you know, unfortunately we're, we're dealing with the consequences of that, but I really think the opiate epidemic is, is not only just a function of the actual meds themselves it's a function, a problem due to a significant, significant gap in access to mental health care in this country. Unfortunately, it's really been a significant issue where people are basically using some kind of drug, right. Um, as a chemical coping mechanism, right. Essentially. Uh, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, um, of course, you psychologists are smart about these things, but there are a lot of folks who don't realize that kind of pain and post-traumatic stress and anxiety are all kind of tied up together in terms of processing in the brain, in the limbic system specifically. Um, and in that amygdala, where you have that sort of emotion kind of behavioral sort of memory that's very rudimentary, you know, primary, you know, sort of um, primal, I should say, sort of area, you have all these past traumas and depressions and anxieties that ultimately get kind of mixed up with chronic pain. And half the time, you know, even the, the poor patient doesn't even really understand that that's happening, much less a, a practitioner. And they're basically like, oh my gosh, like I take this opioid and it makes me feel better, right? But the mechanism of action of an opioid is really to kind of just relax you, right? Just make you feel better by releasing dopamine in your brain and just, you know, kind of enhancing your overall emotional state, at least temporarily. Um, so what they're, what we actually are doing is we're treating probably both physical pain and suffering when we prescribe an opioid to some extent, um, which isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. But the problem is when we end up treating a little bit more psychological suffering as opposed to physical pain, right, then we kind of, we're going down the slippery slope and it can create some issues. Um, I, I read a study from 2017 showing that 51% of the opioids prescribed in the United States of America go to people who have some sort of mental health disorder, right? So more than half of the opioids that are prescribed in the United States are going to somebody who has something like a depression, like an anxiety, like a post-traumatic stress, something like that. So it really does, again, kind of beg the question, what is it that we're actually treating? You know, what is it that we're actually taking care of using these medications? And, you know, if we're using something that's psychoactive, like an opioid, whatever it is, we could be potentially creating a bigger problem. Yes. You know, um, I think physicians and prescribers have been in a tough spot. You know, my experience of physicians, I, I know a lot of physicians, I work with a lot of physicians, is that they're caring. They're, they become a physician to help people to alleviate suffering, you know, mm -hmm. to help people find hope and meaning and um, activity in their life. Like most physicians are good hearted and want to be helpful. And I just, um, you know, it's a real emotional bind and, uh, with this, with this opioid epidemic, because physicians are, uh, prescribing and then it's with information that was not accurate. And now they're in this kind of loop where they want to alleviate suffering. Their tools are more limited now because of the concerns about opioids. Um, you know, most physicians want to be helpful, alleviate pain and suffering mm -hmm. and, 
mm-hmm. I, I don't want them to be vilified either. Cause I think physicians are kind of under a tremendous amount of pressure and a shorter amount of time with their patients Absolutely. and in the midst of COVID in the midst of pain and suffering, we know that the majority of people with mental health concerns get their uh, antidepressants from primary care providers. So primary care providers are really kind of holding and and holding society like, you know, and so I don't want to vilify physicians for wanting to help people. And I'm um, angry with the, the um, pharmaceutical company, right. That companies that created this and, and gave false messaging and false hope to people and created a bigger problem. So I, I just want to put that out there and, and wanted to get like your sense of what is the sort of morale <clears throat> among your colleagues who <clears throat> are treating suffering or treating pain or kind of holding this together in the midst of COVID and the opioid crisis. You know, it's both a COVID and opioid crisis, yeah. right? <clears throat> and what is the pulse of physicians right now? I mean, I think in general, like the COVID pandemic made it very clear to a number of physicians that they were expendable, right? As the demise of the private practice has been continuing over the course of the past three or four decades and corporate equity is coming in and kind of buying up more physician practices and kind of just being like, I'm buying you out and here's a salary and you're gonna do whatever I tell you to do. Loss of autonomy, loss of um, you know the problems like with reinsurance, insurance reimbursements, and coverage for treatments, and different things like that, which weren't nearly as much of an issue three or four years ago. Obviously, the rising um, you know student loan, like student debt burden, is a significant issue. Physicians are more burned out in 2022 than they've ever been in history, and um, when basically they discovered that, you know, a lot of the, they were, a lot of them were let go by their employers because there wasn't a patient volume or whatever it was. And they said, you know what? I can't believe I've been slaving away for somebody else for all these years, right? I thought this is what I was supposed to do. I thought I was supposed to complete my training, get out, you know, get a job, you know, hopefully make some money, take care of people, you know, and and do good in society. And we just find ourselves handcuffed in a number of different ways, whether that's by governmental regulations on medications, whether that's by, you know, um, like just general concerns about liability, whether that's by insurance, whatever it might be, right? And the reality is that the American healthcare system is a much tougher place to practice in 2022 than literally, than it has been at any time in human history to this point. And so I think so thinking about that from like a global standpoint of how physicians are feeling right now in general, obviously COVID and the opioid epidemic has not made anything easier, right? Um, So that's like even my colleagues in in pain management, we're used to prescribing opioids, you know, we're used to like taking care of patients who have chronic pain. I mean, the reality is that the stresses on our patients are actually so much more now than they've ever been. So whatever coping strategies they had to help deal with their pain and different things are have been altered, right, or have been reduced. And I think, you know, so much of that is, um, is affecting them. They're asking for more meds. They're asking for this. They're asking for that. And, you know, it's kind of making all of us to some extent more uncomfortable maybe than we were before. Uh, but, you know, and that, so this is, this is what I keep telling everybody that I talk to. I say, you know, pain and addiction, this is a burden that can't just fall on primary care docs. It can't just fall on the mental health space. Pain and addiction are things that ha- kind of everybody in the health system sort of has to be able to, has to try anyway to step up to help take care of these people in a, in a better, more effective, more collaborative way. Um, but at the end of the day, 
the you know CMS and insurance companies don't want to really reimburse you to take care of addicted patients because it's not a lucrative thing, right? It's not a, it's not procedural, right? In medicine, anything that's procedural is lucrative, right? So people say, well, why should I do something that number one, maybe I'm not super comfortable with, and number two, that nobody's really going to pay me a lot of money for, and I'm just going to struggle to keep my doors open if I you know take care of more patients who are like this, um, you know. So, but I think that one of the things that is kind of coming out of this that has been good is that. More patients are now refusing opioids or just saying, I don't want them from the beginning, which is really good because potentially they're not subjecting themselves to a problem or a potential problem, I guess, down the line. Um, you know, and one of the things I think that's really nice, especially about the VA in particular, is that they're really trying to emphasize self-care, right? Active care for pain management now. Previously, in the biomedical model of pain, as opposed to the biopsychosocial model of pain, right? You know, we were kind of so focused on, okay, like, where's the problem? Like, what's the issue on the MRI? Like, do you have arthritis in your knee? Like, what's going on in the neck? Like, I need imaging. Like, I need to find like a specific physical problem, right? That's what we kept saying over and over and over again for the last 50 years. And this is what patients seized on, right? This is what they thought, like, oh, like, you know, if there's a problem, if it can be fixed, then I'll just be better, right? And everything, will, I won't need any medications and everything will be fine, right? Um, you know, but what we've realized is that, you know, if you MRI, if there's actually a really nice study out there showing that if you take the lumbar spine of the average 30 year old, you will find something, you will literally find something on that MRI. And if that 30 year old is savvy enough and reads those results on their own, they're going to say, this is the cause of my pain, this tiny little finding, this is the reason why I'm having all this pain. And the reality is that as a pain doctor, as a spine doctor, I know that that's not true, right? I know that that can't possibly be causing the level of pain that this person is experiencing. But, you know, we're so kind of ingrained in that biomedical model of thinking that we think, okay, we're treating something biological, let's use an opioid, as opposed to we're treating something that's biopsychosocial, let's utilize physical therapy, psychotherapy, you know, other different types of antidepressants, different things like that. And we, you know, have created this sort of situation where people kind of don't like being told, especially now that everyone always assumes that they're told, oh, you're telling me the pain is in my head. I created this or something. I say, no, pain is not in your head. It's definitely not in your head. It feels very real to you. I get that it feels super real to you, but I cannot find a biomedical cause for it, which doesn't make you crazy, which doesn't make you like a bad person, right? It just means that I have to treat you in a different way than I treat somebody who has a herniated disc who needs an epidural steroid injection, right? It's just a different way that I have to treat them and conceptualize their pain. But, you know, who really wants to hear that? So and it's still pain. Exactly. And it's still pain because pain, according to the IASP, right, the International Association for the Study of Pain, is a subjective experience. It is by its very nature a subjective experience that nobody except the person experiencing it can actually understand, which is what makes it so hard. Yeah. And this is where, you know, you identified a couple of things. One is that there's a major gap in access to mental health care. And two, there's stigma around mental health care, which is if it's all in my head, that's not worthy. Right. <laughs> or if I'm suffering with mental health concerns and that's manifesting with physical pain and suffering in these multiple ways, that's not good enough to treat. Like there's a stigma that that's not good enough to treat, or that's not an acceptable type of pain or an acceptable type of suffering, that there's some moral judgment around it that's creating that stigma. And so there's a double whammy. One is there are gaps and two, that there's massive stigma, especially for chronic pain and, uh, and opioid 
uh, people who are using opioids to manage the chronic pain and also have mental health concerns. And so I, I think you're really pointing out two really important features that <clears throat> we have multiple work. We have a lot of work to do to, to one shift the messages around opioid use and mm -hmm. that everybody needs to take responsibility for that. And two, to shift messages around stigma around mental health, which we all have to kind of rally to do together as well. Absolutely. The one other thing that I'll point out is that, you know, um, I think for the average person, average, you know, uh, individual, like lay person who's listening to our discussion, I mean, I think so much of this really comes down to like, obviously getting appropriate care for all of your different conditions, whether those are physical health conditions, mental health conditions, whatever it might be, but just not being afraid to like reach out and really look for that help and look for, look for ways to kind of improve your life. Um, but, you know, more Americans are living with chronic pain now than they ever have because, you know, we live longer than we previously did. And, you know, if you trust our caveman bodies, right, you know, but back when we were cavemen, we lived to be until about, you know, maybe 30, 35 years old, 40 years old max, right? Now we live until 80, 90, 100 years old. And I mean, one way of thinking about it is that maybe the human body was not necessarily, you know, built to exist for such a long extended period of time. And now we survive heart attacks, we survive cancer, you know, children who used to die, you know, three or four days after birth are now living to be 40, 50 years old. We're dealing with all the consequences of that too, which means that people are going to develop obviously arthritis, spine issues, all these other different things, which means a lot of people, a lot more people are developing chronic pain than they ever have before. Um, you know, and it creates this burden, right, of all these issues in association with all the problems associated with the treatments that we have, right? So all the, the things that we have to deal with is just creating this significant burden, this initiating also a mental health burden in all those people who are depressed because they can't do the things that they used to do. And it's just, it's unfortunately sort of a tough situation. Um, and until we do a better job kind of, of thinking about these things from a higher level and kind of initiating care for these mental health conditions, et cetera, from a, an earlier standpoint, the more so we're going to end up in these situations where people are just really struggling. Yes. I'd like to talk for a minute about <clears throat> opioid uh, use and abuse in older adults, mm -hmm. if we can. I, um, I know that uh, I think the CDC had identified that among old adults living with chronic pain, that adults 65 and older make up 60% of that population. So it's the, the vast majority of people living with chronic pain are over 60 or 65 and older. And I know that with um, opioid use and in a 2017 um, CMS study, so that's uh, the, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Studies, I think, um, identified that older adults and people with disabilities have um, are the highest you uh, have the highest rates of opioid abuse and have the, are the fastest growing mm -hmm. group of opioid abusers in 2017. I don't know what the state of mm -hmm. that is now, but um, I'm curious if you could talk about kind of what, what you're seeing in research. And I know you just wrote an article, but, mm -hmm. um, but what you're seeing in your practice and in research and veterans are actually an interesting population because veterans who you treat um, the veteran population one of two veterans is 65 and older. So it's actually yeah. skews older, the veteran population does. But so can you talk about the older adults, pain, yeah. opioid use? Absolutely. So, you know, we, there are a couple of things that happen physiologically for us as we age that kind of is a little bit concerning about medications, right? 
So there's something called the beers list or the beers criteria where they look at basically medications that potentially should be avoided as much as possible in the elderly, which are primarily things like really sedating medications, some opioids, um, antidepressants, certain types, different things. Um, but really, when we look at the, the pharmacology and the physiology of it, what happens is that as you get older, your liver is not as effective at, you know, metabolizing drugs. Your kidney is not as effective at excreting or basically urinating out those drugs. Um, and you have some changes basically within the, what we call the total body water, which basically affects, you know, pharmacologically the way that these medications work inside you without getting into all the fine details about it. Um, essentially what that does is it creates um, a problem where we think that if the medication is not metabolized as effectively, uh, we think that it has a longer acting sort of duration of action, as we say, in your body, right? If you're, if you're an elderly patient, which means that, you know, anything that's prescribed, right, that is um, either whether it's psychoactive or whether it's metabolized by the liver can potentially present an issue. And we have to be very careful with that. So a lot of times, you know, I, I have seen you know, for better or for worse, I've seen 85 to 90 year old patients who are just on boatloads of opioids. And they say, you know, doc, this is the only thing that's ever worked for me. Um, you know, I'm not having any problems with it. Why does everybody telling me I need the dose needs to come down? Like, you know, I don't understand what, why they're saying all these things. And I try to explain to them, I'm like, look, this is not a function of you. This is a function of your body and the fact that you're not 40 anymore. You're 90, right? You know, that changes, right? Things change with time. Um, and so we just have to be careful with all of that. Typically, I mean, in my clinical experience, like people who have been on opioids for a long time often tend to gain tolerance, right, to a lot of these other effects and different things. But I mean, the reality is that, you know, the, these medications, and, and I, I always have to explain this to my patients, is that they're not treating the site of pain, right? They're treating the way that your brain feels about the pain, right? And oftentimes that explanation to patients, when I say, I'm not treating your back, I'm treating your brain with these medications or whoever is treating with your, your brain with these medications, a lot for a lot of them, it's a sort of light bulb moment because they've never heard anything like that before. Um, I literally, I'll show them a model of the brain and I'll say, yep, the opiate works here, the opiate works here, the opiate works here. Like I'll point to like different places and I'll say, and I'll point to the spine and I'll say, but it doesn't really work there, right? And uh, they'll be like, oh my gosh, like nobody's ever explained that to me before. Like, can you help me get off this stuff? Like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to try to do that when you're 40, right? It's another thing to try to do that when you're 75, 80 years old and you've been on these medications for 30 years, right? It presents like a really significant challenge, whether it's, you know, thinking about how to do a taper pharmacologically, thinking about how they're going to tolerate it mentally, physically, from a functional standpoint, all this other kind of stuff. And so I think one of the other things that's really important to think about is function, right? I feel like this is one of the things that gets lost in the shuffle when people talk about opioidosis and, you know, what we call morphine equivalents, which is essentially supposedly the amount of opioid that one might be taking in a given day. You know, we, we use these, um, yeah, I'll just say it, pain scores, which are absolute and complete garbage, right? We've been using pain scores for a long time and they are trash. Uh, the reality is that pain scores have not been shown to do anything um, except really probably result in probably more opiate prescribing. That's really actually what's happened as a result of them, whether it's you know the fifth vital sign and all the other nonsense that happened back in the day. Um, 
So what we what we look at now these days, or you know, especially me as a pain doctor, I look at function. So if I see a patient, I'm going to say, okay, Mr. Jones, like you know, uh, you can walk 50 feet to your mailbox before your back starts to hurt. Okay, so now that somebody's prescribing you these two or three, you know, hydrocodone pills a day, how far can you walk? Is it 150 feet? Is it 200 feet? Is it half a mile? Whatever it is, right? I look at, are you able to perform your activities of daily living? Are you able to, you know, kind of mow the grass and cook your dinner and do the walk your dog, do the things that you need to do to actually get through the day. And if somebody is really not kind of achieving that level of function, like functional improvement, I kind of point that out to them. And I say, look, the whole point of these medicines was to basically help you do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, but you're doing only A out of those like seven things, right? Um, also, like if you tell me that your pain score without these medicines is a nine and with these medicines, it's an eight. If you're telling me they're resulting in a 12% improvement, right, or whatever it is, and you're getting, you know, you're, um, you're filling your body with these things that are just kind of affecting your brain, we kind of have to think about the risks and benefits of that, right? Just like any other clinical decision that we make as, as clinicians, risk and benefit is so important to think about. A number of clinicians now are basically unfortunately, emphasizing those risks over emphasizing the benefits. And so a lot of them are tapering the opioids or discontinuing them without really kind of looking at the patient who's underneath and what they're doing on a, on a daily basis. And they're doing that, as you said, it's not their fault, right? They're doing that in part because, you know, they want to make sure they don't want, they don't want to cause harm, right? You first want to do no harm. And they're also getting messaging from the top, from administrators, from the government, from other different places saying, cut the opioids, they're risky, like they're bad medicines, like we've been telling you the wrong thing all these years, so now you have to like start aggressively cutting these things down. So patients, they get loss of function, they get withdrawal, they get, I mean, all these other kind of unintended consequences. And oftentimes they can't even get access to opioids, right? Even when they may be indicated and might be helpful in some of these more, you know, tough situations. If I have a patient who's, you know, even if they are 65, 70 years old, yeah, of course, I'm not thrilled about the idea of putting them on, on opiate medications if I don't really have to. But if I know that they have other medical comorbidities that I can't do injections for them, they're not good candidates for surgery, you know, they're, and they have like a pain condition that is just probably going to be with them for the rest of their lives, you know, understanding all the pharmacology and the physiological changes that happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't still get benefit from opioids and enjoy their golden years, right? Um, but I think, you know, so many clinicians are, are just terrified of causing a problem, right? Um, that, you know, it's not, I don't think it's even really like the, the oh, the DEA is going to come after me and they're going to audit my charts or anything. No, it's not really a significant issue. I've testified in a few cases where the DEA has actually done that. And there were pretty egregious instances of actual like pill mills as opposed to, you know, just regular physicians trying to do their jobs. So the reality is that I think they're just worried about causing a problem for these, you know, elderly patients are vulnerable, right? And they have a lot of different things going on sometimes. So I think that there are some concerns about that have correlated with people getting less and less medicines. The real challenge is that, you know, the data that we have that you referenced about them being, you know, potentially abusing opioids and different things like this is really like, um, it presents some challenges because we know that substance use disorders are most common typically in populations under 30. And the reason why that is, in case you didn't know, is that the brain does not fully develop, of course, until the age of 25 or 26, meaning that you know, you're likely to make more bad decisions, you're likely to drive too fast, you're likely to do drugs, you're likely to do all those things. So your likelihood of developing an addiction is much higher at, the, at that age. The likelihood of developing a true substance use disorder as you get older, it's definitely still there, don't get me wrong, but it's substantially less than it is when you're much younger. So 
you know, I think I think about it in two ways. I, I definitely don't want people, uh, you know, having a problem and getting addicted to things if I can avoid it. I, I'm never going to support somebody taking something and being addicted to it. But at the same time, if it's helping them with their pain, if it's helping them with their function, if they're getting a little bit of euphoria out of it, is that really the worst thing in the world? I don't know. I think if you ask five different doctors, you probably get five different answers on that one. Uh, but that's sort of kind of what I think about the situation that we need to like, everything needs to be balanced, right? Pain care needs to be individualized. Addiction care, of course, needs to be individualized as well. And we need to look at these patients in the context of their lives, as opposed to just, this is a number, you're 80 years old and you're on 120 morphine equivalents. Well, what does that actually mean? Like, is there a meaningful way for me to reduce that by doing some other non-pharmacologic treatments? Or, you know, is this kind of where you are and where you're going to be for the rest of your life? And, you know, like I said, every clinician will probably answer that a little bit differently. I really value your perspectives. You're, you're saying it's not all or nothing. We need to sort of evaluate each case independently, um, treat each case independently. There might be benefits that can enhance functioning and quality of life, which might be the goal for many patients. Um, you know, you were saying, and, and I get it, like physicians are kind of hamstrung. They're, they're, you know, I kind of see them as you were describing them as middle managers who have the highest levels of stress in business. You know, exactly. they're like getting information from the top and then they are trying to help their patients and they're tied. And then there's the, um, the moral dilemma and ethical dilemma of do no harm. And the, in the context of an opioid epidemic, you know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really challenging place to be. Are there, um, consultative supports for physicians to get like, you know, I'm thinking of just the average primary care provider who has 15 minutes with a patient who, um, you know, is trying to do their best and don't have access to all the information that a triple boarded person such as yourself and right has, are there consultative supports for physicians? And yeah, so, I mean, uh, there are pain specialists everywhere. I mean, of course, it's easier to find them closer to major cities, right? Because most physicians want to live closer to major cities if they can. But the reality is that, you know, those, those support systems exist everywhere. Um, and, you know, we, I think the number of pain fellows like, so to, to train, to become a pain specialist, you do a four-year residency, typically in either anesthesiology or physical medicine rehabilitation or neurology, actually. And then you do a one-year fellowship in, in pain management. Um, I will tell you, one year is not nearly enough to learn everything that you need to know about chronic pain. I didn't really feel comfortable as a pain specialist, maybe until my fifth or sixth year out, which is just a couple of years ago. Uh, but that's really kind of where that support is as of now. And we're expanding the number of pain fellowships every year, basically, because we know we have this dearth or scarcity of pain physicians. But at the same time, a number of primary care physicians are saying, well, look, you know, I have this resource that's in my community. Everybody who is on an opioid is going to go to a pain specialist is maybe not the sort of appropriate treatment either, right? You know, it's not like, I mean, at the end of the day, a doctor is a doctor, right? You know, on some level, if you have a DA number, you should be able to manage, you know, some level of prescription opioids in an appropriate, you know, patient who's relatively straightforward. If they're not straightforward and you need help and if they're complicated from a pain or psychological sort of standpoint, yes, you send those consults out to your mental health folks and your pain specialists and all the different things to get support. But, you know, the reality is that we, there's still, I mean, it's there, but it's still not enough. And it's even the pain specialists now, I think there are still more of us than there are psychiatrists out there. Still a lot more of us actually, right? I and I that. think that that's created, um, well, in certain areas anyway, 
the reality is that a good, you know, psychiatrist, a psychologist is invaluable in taking care of patients who have chronic pain. Uh, because, you know, there's so much psychiatric and psychological overlay with that whole biopsychosocial model that I talked about that in order to tease some of these things out and get appropriate treatment, right, it's just the reality is even a pain specialist, as even as good or as maybe mental health savvy as some of them might be, are still not trained mental health professionals, right? They know how to do injections, like they know how to prescribe medications safely and all that stuff. But you know, they're going to have challenges. I mean, I have challenges. I'm an addiction medicine specialist. And even I don't really, really truly understand how to take care of a patient with like a borderline personality disorder or a bipolar disorder or, or other different things. I mean, those patients are super challenging for everyone. And they're even more challenging for somebody who doesn't have psychiatric training or psychological training. So, you know, I, and th those are the people often who are the highest like healthcare system utilizers, right? You know, who the frequent flyers in the emergency rooms, all these other different things. And they have so many problems, so many issues that they're tough to take care of. So, you know, uh, that's a long way of saying, yes, there are some support systems out there and there are like different places that you can reach out to. Like, you know, there are uh, like, you know, some of the um, governing bodies in pain management and addiction medicine, different things will have consultative services like that. Just you can ask them a question, different things. And I'm happy to send you some links, uh, Regina, we can maybe get some of those posted. But, you know, um, it's it's a tough place to be in healthcare taking care, taking care of patients with chronic pain right now. There's just no two ways about it. Yeah. Uh, just a few minutes ago, you were talking about maybe uh, an older patient who was compliant on um, pain medication, maybe opioid medication, maybe low doses for many years, didn't have any struggle. Um, and and you had started to talk about the risk of tapering. Uh, you know, there's there's this sort of dilemma of like, do we involuntarily taper people? <laughs> do we taper people? Like, how how forceful is you know are mm -hmm. is the system? And then and then physicians acting in line with the system. Um, so in a person who's been you know compliant, getting benefit, and um, maybe not abusing the substance, and what are the the downsides of involuntarily tapering somebody who sure. sort of meets that criteria? So there is data, and you're not going to like hearing this. Nobody will. There's data that actually came out of the VA in 2020 showing that involuntarily tapering opioids that are improving pain and function can increase the risk of suicide. Uh, because, and it makes perfect sense, right? If you have something that's a treatment that's working well, right? You have a uh, you know, a patient who's improving, who's doing better, your urine drug screens are appropriate, you're checking their prescription drug monitoring, and they're getting all their stuff, all their meds from one doctor, you know, from the same pharmacy, and you know, everything looks like the way it's supposed to. And because there are a couple things that happen. If we're involuntarily tapering them, because we're being told to do it from the top, or because we ourselves are scared of liability, then we're not putting the patient first, unfortunately, right? Uh, and the patient is saying, I am saying I need this medicine. It is helping me function and you are not listening to me, right? Yeah, I'm doing everything you've asked me to do, right? I've done every, I signed my contract. I did my urines. I did this, I did that. I did everything you asked me to do, right? All the mitigation strategies are in place, right? Harm reduction strategies are in place. But if you're still doing this, then I don't know what to say to you as a physician, right? And I've had people tell me that before. They'll say, and this is not just, you know, here in Atlanta, a lot of times, and even other places, like, oh, my primary care doc stopped my meds. You know, they just said, you know, I, I didn't need them anymore. That's what they told me. And I said, no, they were like helping me function. They're helping me do this, helping me do that. Um, 
and you know it creates a really difficult situation for them because you know a lot for a lot of them the the reason why they have function to some extent is because they're on these meds right uh, and they might not really have much otherwise depending on the situation so if an elderly person particularly who has other medical comorbidities maybe even forget about the pain maybe they have heart problems or lung problems they may not be able to walk very far they may not be able to do this they may not be able to do that so for them even going to the supermarket is like a big task right you know picking up groceries if they're not really able to do that you know without some level of of alleviation of their pain you know it kind of presents them with this you know situation of well what what am i do what am i still doing here like why am i still living i i'm not functional right you know i can't really live by myself anymore so they lose you know their pain control sometimes they lose their independence they lose a lot of different things and it makes them depressed naturally just like you would make any of us depressed 30 year olds with chronic pain are super depressed because they're supposed to be young like having the time of their lives and I don't know, partying and meeting people and doing this, doing that, whatever. And when they can't, I mean, they get super depressed. And it's no different in somebody who's 75, even if they have lived a little bit longer. Right, right. And I think um, when we had prepared for this, we were talking about the the risks of involuntary um, withdrawal or tapering. And so one was suicide. And then and then you're you're pointing to now like worsening functional ability. Mm-hmm. And um and does it also have the effect then, so when people involuntarily taper, are they generally bolstering with other supports like mental health or, um, cause I'm imagining it would then worsen pain. I mean, if they're taking the medicine yeah. for pain and then. Right. I mean, the idea of course is to try, I mean, okay. In theory, if you're going to taper some of these opioids, you, you would look at it, you look at the risk benefit, right? That's the first thing that you look at. You say, okay, is this giving you enough benefit to justify the risk that I'm taking by prescribing it to you? Right. And those risks being things like respiratory depression, nausea, constipation, possibly death, obviously, in, in theory is always possible. So if it's deemed that the risks outweigh the benefits, right? If the clinician deems that the risk is more than the benefit, then the clinician should be saying to themselves, as you correctly point out, okay, well, what else am I going to do for your pain other than give you this particular drug? Am I going to give you some other medication? Am I going to send you off to therapy? Are you going to go see a pain specialist and try to get some injections or different things? Right. Um, You know, and I think that we, a lot of clinicians that I've worked with are really good at taking things away, but not necessarily good at suggesting things that might be helpful, or maybe only suggesting things that might be temporarily helpful or beneficial. Uh, But I think that's where this kind of piece of of self-care and active care related to pain management comes into play and is so important because the longer that you expect things to be done to you to alleviate your pain, the more you're going to struggle when those things go away, right? Um, and if you are able to kind of think about managing your pain in ways that's more sort of based on you as opposed to based on some external factor, right? So it improves your sense of a locus of control. It probably improves your sense of, you know, depression, anxiety, isolation, all those other different things. And hopefully on some level, it actually improves your physical pain as well, right? I mean, but at minimum, we know it's going to, the fact that you are doing something, you're taking a step to do something about your pain is obviously going to make you feel better, at least on some level that you're trying and you're actively doing something as opposed to, I'm just sitting on my couch, taking some pills and watching TV and just hoping I'm going to have a reasonable day. Right, right. I also think this involuntary taper, you know, um, involuntary means that the patient is not in agreement with the decision, right? So, 
At one point, a physician said, yes, I will prescribe this. Now the physician is saying, you can't be on this anymore. And I can imagine for the patient, it would lead to a lot of mistrust in that provider and in the healthcare system. It's like a bait and switch. Wait, mm-hmm. wait, you prescribed this for me before, but why not now when I'm actually right. getting benefit from it? Yeah. So the way I look at that situation, because I have done this, I have done involuntary tapers before because I have discovered that the risks outweigh the benefits. The reality is that if you have somebody who's prescribed opioids 15 years ago versus now, right? Things change, right? Their, their, uh, their pain state changes, right? Their back gets worse or their knee gets worse, right? Their mental health state may change. They may have more depression, anxiety, whatever it might be. Uh, their body changes, right? We talked about aging already and the physiology, physiologic changes that are happening with that. Um, you know, so in that situation, they may be, they, their tolerance may have changed, right? They may need more and more and more of these drugs, and they may be having more and more side effects and different things like that. So it's important to look at the entire clinical picture. And when I do this, when I do this for patients, I tell them, I say, look, you know, I know that somebody has done this for you before. And I know that you don't like the idea of me taking this treatment away from you, but I'm looking at the facts here, and this is what the facts tell me, right? That A, B, C, D, E, F has happened in this time, right? You know, the medication was working better for you 10 years ago. It's not really working very well for you now. You're not able to get off the couch. You're not able to do this. You know, we're, I'm worried because you asked for like early refills several times, right? You know, so even, you know, all this stuff, if you think about it, it's not really working. It's not really helping. It makes sense for me to either taper this or change it to something else or think about a different strategy for your pain entirely or possibly all three of those things. Right. Um, so, you know, I think taking a look at everything comprehensively and really looking at a patient's history is really kind of gives you what gives you a sense of, of what to do in that situation. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if somebody does that without really a full and thorough explanation of why they're doing it, they're just going to be like, this guy's a, you know, for lack of a better term, a jerk. Right. And saying, you know, he doesn't want to take care of me. He doesn't care about me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then, you know, the downside too, is then that could get generalized to to more of the healthcare mm-hmm. system. And if you're in a population that already mistrusts the healthcare system, you know, that could just add to the mistrust and, and maybe withdraw from the healthcare system for other, for other needs that you might have. I want to switch gears to a minute for a minute to talk about addiction. Can you define addiction? Mm-hmm. And kind of discuss a little bit about the, the neurobiology of addiction. Absolutely. So when we look at, um, I want to differentiate, and this is really important because a lot of people miss this. It's important to differentiate physical dependence from addiction, right? If you talk to a lay person, they will tell you, oh, uh, my dad has been on pain meds for 15 years. He's addicted, right? Untrue. Well, it could be true potentially, but the one thing I know from that one statement is that your dad is probably physically dependent on opioids, meaning that if he doesn't have an opioid, he's going to withdraw, right? Addiction is specifically defined by pathologic behaviors, meaning that you are in some way messing up your life. You're screwing up your relationship with your family. You're missing out on major obligations that you have to do uh, because you're busy using some substance or obtaining some substance. You're having... um, cravings, you know, you might be having some, some possibly tolerance or withdrawal symptoms and different things like this. Uh, but basically like it's, it's showing that the search for the substance has taken over your life. Right. And that's basically how we define what we call a substance use disorder or SUD, where you can basically, you can call that an opiate use disorder, a cocaine use disorder, a cannabis use disorder, alcohol use disorder, et cetera. Anything kind of fits into those categories. 
Um, so the neurobiology of it essentially is that, so we as little babies, every time we start to do something that kind of advances our development, we get release of dopamine in our brains, right? To basically make us do that. It gives us euphoria and rewards us for doing the things that we're supposed to do. As we get a little bit older, we get dopamine release in our brains for doing life-sustaining activities. Things like eating, eating, drinking, peeing, pooping, orgasming, if we have sex, the idea of evolutionarily speaking to continue our reproduction and stuff like this. So the problem is the dopamine release that you get from these regular everyday life-sustaining activities is not nearly as much as you get from using um, you know, an illicit substance, right? So if we think that you know, your dopamine release from eating a meal is X, we think that at least in rats anyway, it's around 2X. And we think that uh, if you have sex, that is sex in rats is around 2X. We think that using amphetamines, probably about 10 to 12X. Um, heroin, fentanyl, probably in the range of, I don't know, let's say 20 to 25X. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy the, the amount of dopamine release that you actually get from some of these other illicit substances, which means that basically what it does is it hijacks your brain, right? And says, okay, well, I need this reward. I need this euphoria. And basically you go after it and try to get it. The difference is that addiction doesn't develop in everyone, right? It only develops in some people. So because not everybody who drinks alcohol gets addicted to alcohol. So basically the risk factors are, um, you have to think about genetics, right? So if you have a first degree relative who has, um, you know, some kind of addiction or substance use disorder, you're likely to developing it is like 40 to 60% higher. Then of course, there's all the various psychological factors associated with it, right? You have like, you know, poor socioeconomic status, like history of trauma, depression, anxiety, different things like that, mental health issues. And then of course, exposure to a drug, you have to be exposed to a drug to ultimately become addicted to it. Um, and there are a whole lot of other things that I could talk about, but essentially like that's, sort of the long and short of it. Um, and obviously, like I mentioned before, the younger you are, like if you're a teenager or a young adult in your early 20s or maybe in your mid to late 20s as well, you know, you're much more vulnerable to addiction at that time period just because your brain is still developing. The frontal lobe, which is in charge of executive planning and function, judgment, all that kind of stuff, is not fully developed. And it really is only probably fully developed maybe like by the time you're 30 years old or so. So, you know, these are all important considerations to think of in the population. Now, I appreciate so much the distinction between the physical dependence versus addiction, that they're different things. Do they uh, shift brain structure in the same way? Um, no. So physical dependence, as far as we understand at this point, it affects tolerance, right? You get tolerance and withdrawal symptoms as a result of physical dependence, but addiction actually rewires your brain. And I'll explain. So there's a really nice study that Nora Volkow, who's the head of NIDA, did a couple of years ago, where they took people who used cocaine, right? They had been sober for actually quite a long time. And what they did is instead of giving them cocaine, they showed them pictures of cocaine. And when they did functional MRI studies, the reward centers in their brains lit up like Christmas trees. So the fact is, even though they had been away from using an illicit drug for so long, right? When they saw it, it's still that just seeing it gave them euphoria. It just gave them that sort of sensation of, oh my God, I feel amazing. Kind of like when you see a picture of a piece of cake, right? And you're like, oh my God, I really want that cake. And your, your brain feels really happy all of a sudden. You feel good when you see that picture of cake or when you see it 
a, a cake on a plate sitting in front of you, it's literally exactly the same thing, right? So your brain is rewired in a different way if you have a sweet tooth or if you have a cocaine addiction, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I was reading a New York Times opinion piece this past, a couple of weeks ago, and it was a physician who had, had was in recovery was talking about um, that he did not believe that addiction was a disease. And I'm curious what your take is. Is addiction a disease? Absolutely it is. Uh, And if you ask the American Society of Addiction Medicine, every definition they have had, I think from 2005 moving forward, has called addiction a chronic disease. And the reason why we know it's a chronic disease is because it relapses and remits, right? There are patients who relapse, right? Who do well for a really long time. And then they have a bad day. They have a bad week. They have a bad month. They meet somebody they haven't met in a long time. It's a trigger, whatever it is. And they go back. So addiction is not just a disease, but it's a chronic disease, right? And that's really important when we think about how we treat high blood pressure and diabetes, which are chronic diseases, right? These diseases require lifetime, long-term management with therapy with lifestyle changes with medications sometimes, right? All three of those things. And so addiction requires also kind of a comprehensive approach to treatment, which unfortunately is just not really particularly well-funded in our country right now, really not really well-funded across the world, to be totally honest. Um, And so that's why a lot of these, that's why you see a number of people relapse. They just don't have the framework that they really need to get the treatment that they need to prevent themselves from relapsing. But the nice thing, which is really good, and I was actually just reading an article about this uh, yesterday, is that about 75%, we think anyway, this is all epidemiologic studies, we think that about 75% of patients who develop a substance use disorder actually do recover over time. That's like typically, sometimes it takes a long time, like typically eight to 10 years for a number of people, but depending on how it goes, so that some of them actually do much better. You know, they go on to, to, to live their lives in more meaningful ways, can interact with society more meaningfully. And that's actually one of the interesting things about some of these medications, right? So I've had some patients who I put on Suboxone and I've literally watched their lives just turn around, right? You know, it, they went from, you know, being so focused on only a drug to, you know, reconciling with their families and getting their jobs back and, you know, finding a place to live and doing all these things. And it's pretty, it's pretty incredible to watch that like sort of turnaround and that change. Um, because when I work, you know, that's why I really love some of the work I do in the addiction space, because in the chronic pain space, a lot of times I do an injection and somebody's got, you know, 20% improvement or 40% improvement. Like they still can't go back to doing a lot of things that they wanted to do. But in addiction, that's, it's one of the things that really makes treating addiction worthwhile. It's just watching people go back, reclaim their lives, become productive members of society and, you know, really kind of um, just improve their whole situation. I'm thinking what a message of hope, you know, there, there's a dark, dark shadow side to addiction disorders and, um, and all the fallout. And, um, I know my family, there's a lot of struggle and, uh, I've worked with a lot of my own clients and patients with who struggle for years and years and decades. I have to tell you, Sidir, one of my, the things I love most about being a psychologist are stories of redemption. And, and to me, it is, the most unreligious spiritual experience I have that Mm -hmm. I get to kind of walk alongside my clients. You know, a lot of times I work with people for like a decade, you know, I'm patients I've worked with for 10 years and to get to a place, like to be in the dark spaces with our patients and then to be there alongside of them through all the struggle. And I I'll tell you, you know, anybody who specializes and works in addiction knows that that struggle can last 
a long, long time with a lot of tragedy and trauma and pain Mm -hmm. um, and families and beyond. And then just this message of hope that it's possible to reclaim and redeem your life is so powerful. So just that I just, I'm, I'm left with so much hope with that, this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. Um, I have a couple of other questions. So say somebody with, uh, say somebody has a chronic uh, pain condition mm-hmm. and an addictive disorder mm-hmm. or an addiction disorder. How do I say it? Addiction disorder, substance use disorder. Substance use disorder. Um, how do you treat them for pain? Mm-hmm. It's complicated. Um, so the first thing you do is, so you look at what they've already done, right? You look at their, whatever their underlying pain pathology is. You look at, uh, if they have mental health pathologies, you look at those, right? You look at their function and you see what treatments they've had in the past, whether those have been medications, whether those have been, you know, therapy, whether, whatever the situation might be. And you sit down with them. It takes a while. And you calmly explain to them that prescribing things that are controlled substances and that have addiction potential have the potential to actually make their lives much worse. But it's also very important to think about where they are in their addiction journey, right? If they are recently diagnosed, newly diagnosed, you know, their risk of, uh, of relapsing is very, very high, as opposed to if they've been in remission, you know, for a couple of decades, it kind of changes the options that you have, right? Um, so I have patients who um, previously did have histories of opiate use disorder that's remote within you know, 20, 30 years ago. They used to inject heroin uh, back in the day. And some of them I actually am managing on some low-dose prescription opioids for their chronic pain, and they're actually doing really well. Um, I watch them a little bit more closely than I do my other patients you know, who, who don't have an OUD, right? But uh, you know, I want to be, I, I'm, I'm very clear that, you know, if there are any issues, if there are any considerations, I'll have to think about changing this or stopping it or whatever it might be. Um, not something I like to do very often, but every once in a while, you know, it's, 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 it's appropriate. Uh, you know, I think in terms of thinking about um, the, the one that really presents a lot of issues is actually not even necessarily opiate use disorder, but it's actually alcohol use disorder. So I think that, you know, obviously the best case scenario uh, for those patients who do have chronic pain and an SUD is to really think about try to, trying to use any non-pharmacologic means that you can. So whether that means like a something like a physical therapy, chiropractic treatments, acupuncture, injections, you know, different things like that are more likely to be a benefit. But I think, again, that piece that I keep going back to about that active self-care, I think, is something that cannot be understated in this very, very complex, challenging population, because if you can actually get them to do that, uh, you can get a lot of things to improve, whether it's their pain, their mental health condition, whatever it might be. Uh, but, you know, obviously maximizing all non-pharmacological treatments that you can use, you know, doing, you know, anti-inflammatories, Tylenols, different things like this, or like to be effective topical treatments, like various gels, ointments, patches, different things like this can be useful. Um, and that's pretty much the way that I approach them. And I explain to them, you know, I look at their addiction history, like I said, and I say, you know, is it reasonable to consider doing some of these things, you know, based on what you had done previously, or maybe based on what you're doing right now? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And again, you have to individualize care to each patient, just like you would do with their chronic pain in general. Yeah. 
And to your point about alcohol use, it is the most commonly used substance, right? And most common substance use disorder. Yeah, about 80% of substance use disorders in the United States are alcohol, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which makes sense, right? It's very, very commonly used. It's legal. So people use it all available. the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one final question. So a therapist is navigating care for an older adult living with chronic pain and possible substance use, abuse, or dependence. Oh, what would you recommend to therapists or mental health providers, senior care providers who are working with older adults who might have chronic pain and substance use, abuse, or dependence? I think the most important thing is to try to tease out that diagnosis if you, if you can, which I mean, takes time and takes effort and getting those people to the, getting the resources that they need, getting them to the right place, whether that's an addiction medicine specialist, whether it's a pain specialist, whether it's both, right. Uh, thinking about that in that context is, is really critical because managing that patient on your own, um, even just for me as a pain specialist, I mean, I feel pretty qualified to manage most patients who have pain and addiction, but I definitely don't feel qualified to manage the mental health aspects of certain things that they're dealing with. The reality is that we all have to play our part, right? We all have to collaborate in the care of these patients. But I think the most important thing is to make them realize that when you when you send out these referrals or when you get them, you know, you let their primary care doctor know what you think is going on, to make it clear that, you know, you're not going to abandon them, right? To make it clear that, you know, they're going to be supported, right, in this entire process. Because a lot of times chronic pain patients I mean, are just so marginalized, right? They're marginalized at the five different specialists they've seen uh, who said, you don't have a problem, get out of here, go talk to somebody else. Uh, They've marginalized at the pharmacy when they try to fill their medications. They're marginalized at home when their families who can't see the issues that they're dealing with are saying, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why can't you get up and get to work and do this? They're marginalized by their peers. They're marginalized by so many different people, right? And I think that for them, having a therapeutic ally in a therapist is actually so important, right? Because they're, they're dealing with rejection and, and with this marginalization from so many other areas that just having a couple of relevant therapeutic alliances may, may be enough. You know, I, I've seen so many patients where I sit down and talk to them for like 20 minutes, 25 minutes, because I'm at the VA, I have a little bit more time. They say, doctor, you're the first, you're the first person who's really actually addressed these issues with me and really listened to me. You're the first person who's listened to me in like 10 years that I've been dealing with this condition. And, you know, I think being in the therapy space, you know, obviously you guys have a unique role to be able to sort of do that. And, you know, it, I, I'm not going to lie. It is tough listening to people in pain all day long. It is not an easy thing to do. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Steiner and I have talked about this before as well, but the reality is that like, you know, you are actually making a tremendous difference in these people's lives. And they may not, they may not even vocalize it at the time. They may not even realize it until later, but, you know, just hearing that they have somebody who's on their side, who's listening to them, who's interested in their well-being, because, you know, and who has the time to actually sit down and listen to them is, is so, so, so important. So I think those are the two things, basically developing that alliance and getting them, you know, to the specialists that at least may be able to provide an opinion or, or offer some sort of assistance, even if they're not actually taking care of the full problem. Yes. And this message of not abandoning and not contributing to that marginalization is really paramount. Absolutely. Thank you so much for 
being here and giving us really clear and helpful information. Kind of, I feel like we've emerged in this conversation from the fog of the <laughs> opioid and COVID uh, epidemics and pandemics, and um, and that there's you're sort of leaving us with a message of hope and action that even walking alongside and not abandoning and supporting and and maintaining an alliance and relationship can be so incredibly powerful in the in the healing journey. And Absolutely. healing doesn't have to mean no more pain, right? Exactly. You know, one of the things I've definitely realized is that the rapport that you develop with somebody, once you develop rapport, you can do anything and everything to them and they'll like happily go along with it. Once they trust you, they'll be like, doc, just to me anyway, they'll be like, doc, do whatever you need to. You need to do an injection, do it. You need to do this, that, do whatever it is, do it. And I think that building that trust and that rapport is ultimately, as you said, so, so critical in helping manage their overall conditions for sure. Yeah. So thank you again for having me. This has been a wonderful experience. Great conversation for sure. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.